0: Welcome to the Hindus Pale podcast. I am Zubeda Hamid, your host for today. The Union Ministry of Ayush recently said that it was preparing to open Ayurveda and homeopathy outpatient and inpatient departments at the All India Institutes of Medical Sciences and other central government hospitals in the country. India has a long history of traditional medicine. And a large number of patients use these systems of medicine, while many access both modern medicine and alternative and complementary medicine. The Ayush market, comprising Ayurveda, yoga and naturopathy, Yunani, Siddha and homeopathy, is huge. However, safety concerns abound, especially with regard to drugs and formulations and the burgeoning availability of herbal supplements. There have been cases of injuries and deaths reported as well. So what draws patients to complementary or alternative medicine? Do Ayush drugs and supplements need to undergo the same stringent safety checks that modern drugs do, and does their sale need regulation? Traditional medicine is not going away, rooted as it is in our country, and so are there merits to an integrated approach? We debate these questions with Dr. Anapadam S. Krishnamurthy, founder, Budhi Clinic, and Dr. Syriac Abbey-Phillips, Senior Consultant and Clinical Scientist in Hepatology, the Liver Institute, Rajagiri Hospital in Kerala. Welcome to the Hindu's Pale podcast, Dr. E.S. Krishnamurthy and Dr. Abbey-Phillips.
1: Hi, Subedha. Lovely to be here.
2: Uh, hi, uh, Subedha. Thank you for having me on the podcast.
0: Doctors, let's begin. Starting with you, Dr. S K. Tell us what you think about the union ministry of Ayush's recent move, stating that it would open outpatient and inpatient departments of Ayurveda and homeopathy at all hospitals run by the central government.
1: So, in fact, it looks like uh, two kinds of collaborations have been talked about. One is for practice. They've talked about outpatient departments in the All India Institutes uh, of Medical Sciences and the other is for research uh, where ICMR and the Ayush ministry are collaborating to, to do research and I think that this is a step in the right direction because it enhances the treatments that we can offer to our patients under one roof. The All India Institutes attract a very large number of patients who very often are in a great need it helps to build harmonized protocols for clinical care research, especially this is important for non-communicable diseases where our medical treatment options can often be limited. And third, of course, I, you know, I believe that Ayurveda and yoga are the mind-body medicine of India and we have a duty to take them to the world uh, and, you know, and that is really what integrative medicine is all about. So, in fact, I think there's huge potential.
0: Dr. Phillips, would you like to take that?
1: Um, I have a different uh,
2: take on this because uh, if you look at scientifically progressive societies anywhere in the world, integrative medicine does not feature in them because integrative medicine is something, you know, in simple terms, it is like mixing something that works with mixing something that does not work and giving undue credit to things that does not work. For example, Ayurveda or homeopathy. Because whatever we say and whatever our uh, we appeal towards for example our tradition and cultural medicine the fact remains that ayurveda and homeopathy are actually pseudo scientific practices and they have no evidence for use in any disease condition as a preventive or a treatment and mixing that with conventional medicine is just to you know it's like a smoke and mirrors approach to healthcare so when you cannot uh, let your people afford good healthcare you actually mix things to actually mislead them you know so if if you look at any uh, proper scientifically progressive society guidelines anywhere in the world they don't uh, propose integrative medicine it is proposed only in places where like in india we have a huge gap to bridge between actual healthcare to the masses so this is i don't think this is in the right direction at all i think this is just to uh, show people that something is happening from the healthcare front, from the government, and they are just putting a nationalistic and cultural appeal into it, and nothing more than that.
0: Those are two widely differing viewpoints. Moving on, uh, Dr. Phillips, uh, you have uh, said previously also that sometimes the use of alternative medicine, which is which could be laced with modern drugs or heavy metals, has caused injuries to the body that you have also come across. Tell us what you think. What is the prevalence of, and the of the use of alternative medicine? Can this cause harm? And is there a need for regulations in the sale of this?
2: Um, or, I, mean, I, I have, my uh, research focus is actually on complementary alternative medicine-related adverse events, especially with respect to the liver. And uh, what I have seen in my publications is that uh, a lot of people actually use it. For example, people with chronic uh, diseases, about 68% of them actually used complementary alternative medicine within a three-year period if you look at the published data about 50 percent of people use complementary alternative medicine as per regional data in india and more than 70 percent actually have used it at at some point in their lifetime now uh, this is because they are promoted and advertised there is actually no evidence-based benefits to it they are promoted and advertised and people actually can get it off the counter you don't actually need to go through anybody properly i mean people do that too but then they can always go in and avail alternative medicine services without any regulation now what has happened because of this is because because we lack data on safety and efficacy a lot of people develop side effects and adverse events due to this and one of the most common ones is liver injury and this is mostly because of either adulteration or contamination or direct toxicity of particular herbs in the product so we have actually published the largest series of giloy, which is Tinospora cordifolia herb, very commonly used in Ayurveda. And we have found out that that causes immune-mediated liver injury in a lot, large number of people with underlying autoimmune disorders or history of autoimmune disorders or diseases like diabetes. And we have also shown that how turmeric can be uh, very, very uh, unsafe for the liver. And a lot of publications from the Italian pharmacovigilance societies have actually made the Italian government give warning labels to turmeric supplements there. So, none, none of that pharmacovigilance aspect is happening here, which is which means that there is very poorly regulated supplements industry in herbal and you know, herbal mineral medications ongoing in, in India. And I think it is important that people understand informed health choices so that we can prevent this avoidable uh, health burden.
0: Dr. ESK, would you like to respond to that?
1: Uh, so, I think a few points. One is complementary and alternative medicine as Uh, it's referred to, uh, is not restricted to India. It's a global phenomenon. Maulik Purohit et al. 2013 published uh, the frequency of use of complementary and alternative medicine in the patients attending the Veterans Affairs hospitals in the US. And as you know, VA hospitals are completely free. And they found that 40% of patients with neuropsychiatric symptoms ranging from migraine to depression to a range of other things were using out-of-pocket complementary and alternative medicine. So, this is a global phenomenon. This is not restricted to India. The second is that complementary medicine is not just internal. There is a whole range of procedures that are involved in complementary and alternative medicine. So, I think we need to keep that in mind. Third, I completely understand, uh, I think, where Dr. Abbey is coming from, Dr. Philip is coming from, that there is there are concerns about wrong products, erroneous products that can damage the, the human body, uh, and that a lot of this is over the counter. But again, nutraceutical industry is larger than the pharmaceutical industry globally, This is not just uh, a phenomenon restricted to India. So, over-the-counter is not something that happens in India alone. And lastly, something that's over-the-counter globally, paracetamol, can kill you. You can get fulminant liver failure. So, at the end of the day, I believe there is room for sensible use and sensible practice. I completely agree it has to be regulated. I believe too that all formulations should be treated equally in terms of standards, but that those would be my points.
0: Speaking of standards, as you said, Dr. ESK, some research points to the fact that the use of alternative medicine is growing. In such a scenario, do we need a process of standardization of formulations, randomized control trials, peer-reviewed studies of traditional medicine? Could this make any difference to the outcomes of these medicines? Uh, Dr. Phillips, you said you had a point to make.
2: Yes. uh, So I just wanted to get back to that parastamol bit, which is a very common tactic used to promote chemophobia among people. Uh, We must understand that parastamol is fatal only when it is consumed unintentionally or intentionally in overdoses. It is the safest drug that one can use within its recommended limits. And that happens only when people use paracetamol as you know an an unintentional or an intentional way to you know uh, as for example in a suicide attempt or unintentionally in children. So when you when we talk about uh, herbal or nutraceutical related liver injuries, these are not dose dependent. These can actually cause severe liver injuries, liver failure, and kidney failure in patients who even take a single dose. This is known as idiosyncratic injuries. So, let us not confuse between dose-dependent and dose-independent liver injuries or adverse events and that is completely different.
0: Dr. ESK?
1: Yeah, if I can respond very briefly to that, I was making the point to say that something that's available over the counter, it's impossible for us to regulate dosage and people don't know how much they should take. And that is merely my point. To respond to your question, uh, Zubeda, uh, I believe quality control is vital and there has to be standardization of formulations, whichever domain they come from. And after all, if you think about it, some of the things that we use in allopathy have come from herbs. So, it's not that we can't use formulations. The question is how well prepared they are and how standardized the process is. And I am completely for that. Uh, The second point, which I think is, is extremely important, is that randomized controlled trials are not the gold standard for everything. They are the gold standard for drug formulations, yes. And I believe that all internal drug formulations in whatever domain they come from must be subject to RCTs. But non-pharmacological therapies in the domain that I work, which is to do, for example, with autism and dementia and other chronic diseases, non-pharmacological therapies cannot be easily blinded. And it's virtually difficult or almost impossible to run a randomized controlled trial for many of the non-pharmacological therapies. One thing that we are succeeding in, for example, today is brain stimulation, neuromodulation, where we can do sham stimulation. So certain things can be run on an RCT, but everything can't be run on an RCT. I have another point. An area I work in is epilepsy. If you look at what epilepsy trials take as success, it is a 50% or more reduction in seizures. So, even these standards are not perfect. And I don't believe we should sit in a, in a, in a glass bowl and believe that everything we are doing in modern medicine is fantastic. And everything uh, that is being done in traditional medicine uh, is, is not great. And I'd like to finish with one point. Uh, this was made interestingly by the then Vice Chancellor of NIMHANS, Professor Gangadhar. The point he made was that Ayurveda has existed for centuries before modern medicine came uh, uh, you know, into being. So why is Ayurveda considered complementary and alternative? And I think we, it, it's really a thought process that we have to engage in here. And we have to be open in our minds when we have this conversation.
0: Dr. Phillips, would you like to respond to the whether the regulations and uh, standardizations of all drugs is necessary, and could this make any difference to the outcomes? Uh,
2: yes, uh, I think there were four points, and uh, I'll, I'll just want to uh, you know briefly touch upon each. The first is uh, standardization and regulation of formulations. So we must look at standardizing uh, a formulation only when we identify that it is potentially useful for us you know, for our patients. When it comes to Ayurveda or homeopathy or any of these integrative practices, whether internal or external, none of them have been conclusively proven to be of benefit. So why do you want to actually uh, standardize a formulation or a practice which has no benefits to start off with? But then a lot of people are misled. There is a lot of health misinformation that is floating around because of which we are forced to regulate and, you know, completely... Uh, educate people on how this can impact them negatively so in that sense yes formulations and standardization is important so that we can reduce the health burden or a disease burden among our population these are avoidable health burdens you know consuming a complementary medicine or doing a complementary practice like yoga and landing up with a musculoskeletal injury or landing up with a liver injury with a herbal product is actually avoidable so that way yes i agree with standardization and regulation Second aspect is that the the importance of RCTs. So I think it is important for us to realize where and where RCTs are useful. For example, if you want to look at just a descriptive uh, data, you don't need to do RCTs in that. But if you want to actually understand that if a particular practice or an intervention is working in a community or a group of people or a group of patients, you have to remove the biases and confounders. And that is only possible with an RCT. So, whatever people say that RCT is not the gold standard, it is the gold standard for actual diagnosis or, or, a particular intervention, um, uh, or a particular intervention that can improve a particular condition. It is important. And if you look at any, I mean, even the psychiatric societies or any clinical medicine societies, you look at the consensus guidelines. The consensus guidelines for treatments comes from assimilating data from large-scale RCTs. It is not from observation data. It is from la- large-scale RCTs. So, RCTs are important. Running away from RCT is the most important part of alternative medicine and complementary medicine. They run away from RCTs because they know that it is not going to be good for them. Now, the third aspect is that Ayurveda has been there since centuries and modern medicine is just new. Now, Ayurveda is a pre scientific era artifact. It is a pre scientific era practice which was based on observation untested theories and obsolete pseudo scientific theories which is why it is still complementary and alternative it can never become mainstream because it does not follow the scientific method if you follow the scientific method it will fail that test because it is pseudo scientific so appealing to time and appealing to tradition does not make something more important than the scientific
0: method right Exploring this point a little bit, um, both of you all pointed out that in India, many patients continue to use traditional systems of medicine. Many patients continue to use modern medicine alongside traditional systems of medicine as well. One of the approaches of uh, Ayurveda, for instance, is a focus on a unique cure as per an individual's circumstances. Naturopathy, for instance, focuses on non-invasive treatments. In a world where popping a pill now is the norm for any ailment, alongside a growing mistrust of the pharma industry. Dr. Phillips, do you think there is a reason people, some people gravitate to these particular approaches?
2: Um, see I mean, uh, I look at it in another way because when we talk about uh, science-based medicine or modern medicine as we call it, people think that modern medicine is all about just prescribing pills. You know, and proponents of integrative medicine or proponents of complement and alternative medicine also, Indoctrinate the patients and the family about modern medicine being just pill pushers. This is wrong. I treat a lot of patients, and even a lot of guidelines in hepatology, gastroenterology, and internal medicine societies actually promote preventive medicine as one of the biggest aspects of treatment, where there is no pills or capsules prescribed. You have a lot of lifestyle. I mean, properly studied and effective lifestyle changes, and a lot of other, like like what uh, Professor RSK was saying. A lot of other non-external varieties of treatment options that we can provide our patients. So the whole aspect of pill-only treatment is wrong. And that is something that the alternative medicine industry has indoctrinated people to believe in regarding modern medicine to cause fear in them that modern medicine is all about pills and it is going to harm. This is wrong. So in, in such instances, I think the most important aspect is to make people understand what are the right healthcare choices for them. So, the right healthcare choice is one which benefits them and which has the least risk when when done within that particular uh, evidence-based margin. When you look at alternative medicine, for example, traditional medicines or any practice per se in traditional medicine and complementary medicine, you actually don't have a proper safety net and you don't actually have a benefit net. I mean, there are benefits personally, anecdotally, experience-wise. Uh, I mean, for example, if you look at any integrative medicine programs, you can actually see that that particular website or that web page of that particular program will tell you the benefits. There will be no actual evidence-based benefits in published literature on it. And most important is that people must understand that integrative medicine is a business. Integrative medicine, if you look at all the meta-analytical data, shows only one thing, that it increases cost of care. It does not improve the patient clinical outcomes. It may improve as per the small integrative programs run by the particular companies or run by particular hospitals or clinics. But the truth is that there is no actual clinical benefit except that there is increased cost towards the patient. So, these informed health choices among traditional practices must be well educated to the people so that they understand which is what is best for them.
0: Dr. ESK, would you like to respond both to my questions and to Dr. Phillips's points?
1: Uh, Yes, the first, of course, is that modern medicine is a business too. So business is not unique to any domain. Modern medicine also comes at considerable cost. So that's not unique to integrative medicine. We do see, so I'm a modern medicine doctor. I prescribe medicines to my patients all the time. But I also offer them integrative healthcare approaches to help them get better. And if I look at the domains I am familiar in, the non-pharmacological therapy trials that get published, they are very much about the kind of things that happen in traditional healthcare practices. So, there are non-pharmacological trials of yoga in mild cognitive impairment. the non-pharmacological trials of Tai Chi in mild cognitive impairment. So, I don't believe that, you know, no research happens. Plenty of research happens. There's even a journal of integrative medicine that is peer-reviewed and available. So, I, I think that's the first point. The second point I'd like to make is that we should not assume that we know everything and our patients know nothing. I think patients have a right to make choices and it is our duty to help them make safe choices. So when you talk about integration, a good integrative medicine practitioner is somebody who's helping his or her patients make very safe choices and helping them practice those safe choices. So I don't believe that Uh, You know, one can brand all integrative medicine as being unscientific. The third point I'd like to make is that Ayurveda is an ancient system of medicine. Nothing lasts for centuries if it does not work. I mean, let's be very clear about this. You cannot put out any product or service in the market and expect it to last for centuries. And when you just talk about service utilization... The Ayush market in India has grown from 3 billion in 2014 to 18 billion. And it's growing at 15% CAGR a year. Which means that the consumer is choosing this, these formulations uh, or these practices. And I think that we can't ignore that. I believe that when we ignore that, we do so at our own peril. Uh, so, I think there is a need for glass nostri- uh, you know, openness of mind in order to achieve any progress. And, uh, you know, I I completely have a different point of view about this.
0: Would you say, doctors, a a, a lot of health information is now available on social media platforms, particularly on WhatsApp, Facebook, etc. We saw this a lot during the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, All kinds of health information is going around on social media platforms. Would you say that a lot, of, a lot of this contributes to misinformation and harmful choices as well? Uh, Dr. Phillips, Dr. ESK, could both of you respond?
2: Yes. Um, uh, so if I may, I just wanted to uh, point out a single uh, factor from the last discussion. The one is that you know, Ayurveda, I mean, again, this is an appeal to time and tradition. Uh, Ayurveda is here because it's good business. You know, I mean, modern medicine is business, but then it is effective business. Ayurveda and the integrative part is cost burden business. So I think we have to be very careful in what we choose because we don't want everything is business, but we don't want to burden people with additional costs, which they don't have to do in the first place. So coming to the uh, current point, uh, health misinformation actually uh, exploded uh, because of the pandemic. And I think everybody, I mean, it was already there before, low key. But then it suddenly exploded because the pandemic happened, and I think it has its own wind. The pandemic had its own good and bad points, and one is the whole aspect of health misinformation. Now we know that a lot of people uh, go and look at healthcare or make choices on healthcare based on a lot of what print, visual, and social media has to offer. And the social media, especially Instagram or WhatsApp and Facebook, they are replete with health misinformation, especially from people who have no uh, connection or association with healthcare industry. And uh, this is actually increased health, uh, disease burden in our community. So, for example, if you look at uh, the latest, uh, I mean, the meta-analytical or systematic reviews data from uh, the COVID time, the pandemic time that is published in plus PLOS one or scientific reports i mean this was just last year it shows that health misinformation has actually misguided or misled people into opting for health choices i mean treatment choices which actually harm them more and it is so important that we identify where health misinformation is being peddled and it is the uh, onus of the doctor community the physician community So this is where that other point comes, that the patient does not know anything, the doctors know everything, this is wrong. Here, even doctors don't know a lot. I have seen doctors peddle misinformation like really crazy level, which actually harms the patient. So I think it has to be from both ways. Patients do know a lot of things, but it is up to the doctor to stay updated and inform them about what they really need to know from improving their healthcare or from a preventive aspect. So from in this point of view, I think the whole aspect of fighting health misinformation, especially health misinformation with regards to complement and alternative medicine and how effective they are, which is mostly promoted and advertised and without any benefits. Uh, it is important for the doctors to understand that it is the, the whole aspect of medicine is to first do no harm. And with integrative medicine, like Dr. ESK says, I, I'm sure that there are safe practices and which he's promoting, which I appreciate. But there are a lot of others who actually take patients for a ride and harming them financially, physically, and mentally because of these integrative practices and uh, non-evidence-based practices. So this all stems from the whole aspect that we can actually monetize health misinformation. So this is a big, uh, big business at the moment, you know, monetization of health misinformation. And this is where doctors who believe in the aspect of uh, first do no harm must step in and fight health misinformation, even if it is from your own doctor community, or if it is from the patient community, or if it is from the social media community, where uh, uh, somebody who has no affiliation to healthcare actually peddles misinformation.
0: Doctor, ESK?
1: So I, I think that misinformation is wrong, whether it's about healthcare, whether it's about politics, whether it's about uh, it's about anything else. And I think that fact checking is really important. Uh, And I don't think anyone should participate in actively peddling misinformation, nor should that be tolerated. I think that's very, very important. What we put out in the public domain has to be authentic. There's no question about that. Um, But I think we also need to be cognizant of the fact that, you know, misinformation comes from all different directions uh, and overstating the importance of a particular kind of treatment, whether it's from modern medicine or from uh, Ayurveda, or yoga, or Siddha, um, is is wrong. So I think overstating happens. Overstating happens for a range of reasons, not just for business and marketing reasons. Overstating also happens for belief reasons. Uh, You know, you're a proponent of what you believe. So, for example, even in this conversation, you have two radically different points of view, because both people believe firmly in those points of view. Uh, And I I think we have to understand this. So what we people put out on on social media is not necessarily always in order to harm others. They are also stating their view and social media is full of viewpoints. We have to keep that in mind.
0: Dr. ESK, going back a little bit to my previous question, what in your experience have you found is the reason patients gravitate towards uh, complementary and alternative medicines?
1: So I think there are five barriers to healthcare: Awareness, access, acceptability, affordability, and accountability. And at the end of the day, if you think about it, patients gravitate for a range of reasons. Let's, I see a lot of people with chronic disease. Now, why does a person with chronic disease gravitate? Because they've tried a number of things. So even in, in, uh, you know, say, take mental health uh, as an example. I've been on multiple different types of medications for years and years and years. And it's not having an impact on me. I've tried various other things that my doctors have told me and I've not got better. Uh, And of course, we do know that we have a fairly large 10 to 20 percent of people who are pharmacotherapy non-responders. We know this. Now, isn't it natural that the person will start turning towards other things that they think can potentially help them? I think it's it's part of the human condition, isn't it? So, I will reach out for spiritual help. I will reach out for complementary and alternative medicine. I'll try yoga because I want to get better. I mean, I think that's the, the primary drive of humankind. Uh, so, I think that's one. But I think it's also acceptability. You know, very often medical consultations... Are very short. Somebody just writes a prescription, gives it to you, and you've not had a proper conversation about your health, rightly or wrongly. Uh, very often, that's better facilitated in a number of other settings, and that you know makes people gravitate towards those settings. And I think we need to understand uh, this this aspect as well. I'm not I'm not saying that that makes it right, but I'm trying to say that that's that's another reason why people reach out for. Uh, for what is broadly called complementary and alternative. And I sh- probably should include the spiritual here. And I think it is the desire to get better because that's what we want. I mean, we are not interested in a fancy diagnosis or labels. We are interested in being well. And that's the human condition.
0: Dr. Phillips, would you like to respond to that? Um, one of the things Dr. ESK was spoke about was chronic conditions, about patients, some patients not getting better despite multiple Courses of treatment, and of course, the absolute need to want to get better, and how sometimes they get a better approach with a traditional slash complementary healer.
2: So, um, I mean, I would make a simple, single, effective point. The reason why people opt for traditional practices or complementary practices is because, from a science based practitioner's perspective, uh, there is not enough communication happening. You know, for example, if I have to discuss about a chronic liver disease or a cirrhosis in a patient, I have to discuss with them the whole natural history of the disease, which I do. Because in my practice in the last 10 years as a, as a hepatologist, I have not had any patient go and avail complementary services for the liver disease. That is because I spend time and I communicate well about what is going to happen to them in the next few years or a few months and I do that stepwise. So they know exactly what to expect from their disease. They know exactly what to expect from me and what to expect from a change in treatment. So this is one of the biggest aspects. So somebody who, like, like Professor ESK said, I, I completely agree with him that it's not just about prescribing and sending them to the pharmacy. It has to be, There has to be a human connection. There has to be a compassion. And once that happens, you will see that there is no requirement for people to go for complementary alternative medicine. Because... Medical science or the scientific method is the closest that you can get to the truth when it comes to healthcare. And once there is a big gap here between the patient and the doctor, that gap is filled with a lot of background noise, which is complemented in alternative medicine. And that is how they thrive. They thrive on deficiencies of what modern medicine doctors bring to the fore with regards to patient care. And I I believe that with good communication, with evidence-based and compassionate care, a lot of these alternative medicine practices can actually at some point die down in the future. And uh, the second aspect is that uh, I think the whole uh, part of people wanting to try something more than what is being tried. Uh, For example, I I have a lot of patients who come with their, I mean, people who come with their children for uh, autism spectrum, treatment of autism spectrum disorders from stool transplant point of view. So we have an active unit that performs stool transplantation. We do it for alcoholic hepatitis and infections, which are, well, well studied and researched and we are running uh, trials on it, better large scale trials. But we then, we have parents who come in and ask me, can we try stool transplant for our, uh, our autistic kids because they are not improving with any, any things that we do. We have taken them to everywhere. So I tell them that, you know, this is an experimental approach and there is actually not good evidence to show that changing the gut microbiome will actually improve anything in autism spectrum. So that informed decision, I am going to give them. See, I can actually start a whole Uh, integrated autism spectrum unit where I can give everybody stool transplantation and people will flock to my unit and I can make a lot of money out of it but I don't do it because I tell them that you know this is exactly how it is and we can try if you want but it is not going to help you as per the evidence so this kind of approach is what is required and this is where we can actually give informed I mean like for example important informed decisions from the patients and their bystanders come only when doctors Put the patient first and discuss the evidence-based options first and then goes goes towards uh, non-evidence-based options. So, in that sense, I don't think integrative medicine has any major role to play at the moment except cost uh, burden. But I I hope uh, this will change in the future and we might get something out of it with better studies and evidence uh, instead of viewpoints and opinions.
0: Dr. ESK?
1: Yeah. So, uh, I think the first thing I'd like to point out is that integrative medicine is delivered also by a number of non-profit foundations which believe in it. Uh, And therefore, it's not all about business and all about profit. So, I think we, we have to keep that very, very much in our minds. Second, let me quote the father of modern medicine, Professor William Osler, from putting knowledge before wisdom. Cleverness before common sense and science before art. May the good Lord deliver us. I believe there is a role to play for many systems of medicine in keeping human beings well. I do not, I completely agree with doctor Abby Abbey-Philip that we must communicate well with our patients. But I also believe that we must work together collaboratively with people of all disciplines to see whether we can actually improve our healing environments and to see whether we can actually give our patients relief from chronic symptoms. And I don't think it has to be uh, focused in any particular way. I think modern medicine is extremely important. None of us can, you know, human lifespan has increased because of modern medicine so we can nobody can discard modern medicine but i also believe there is a wealth of wisdom in ancient traditions which can be incorporated sensibly and safely for the well being of man and i think as a doctor i believe i'm here to help people get better i really don't care what tools i use as long as those tools are safe and
0: ethical last question to both of you all doctors we are Going to continue to see the use of traditional complementary and alternative medicines because, in India, uh, as both of you have said, there is a long history of these medicines being available. Mental health, for instance, is an area where, despite advances in treatment, many patients continue to visit places such as dargas in the hope of a cure through faith. So the government in some parts of the country began a Dawa Dua program, where patients are encouraged to seek psychiatric help alongside continuing their prayers, their faith-based treatment. Do you think there is a space for such a such a setup, or do you think that this helps patients access modern medicine alongside other forms of healing as well? And do you think that this is something where such spaces exist and are useful? Dr. Phillips?
2: Yes. Um... So, uh, before I start off, a small uh, quote from W.E. Deming. He said, uh, in God we believe, all others must bring data. Right? So, that is what is important in the scientific method. Um, I mean, coming to this Dava Dua program, uh, I mean, if you look closely at that program, it it was something else altogether. And this is beautifully written as a review report uh, in 2016. And uh, what they did was they actually you know, integrated modern medical approaches along with uh, spirituality uh, among people with mental health disorders. And when you look at the outcomes of that particular, uh, and that this happened in Tamil Nadu, when you look at the outcomes of that particular intervention, you can actually see that only one-third of those patients actually went back to the religious and spiritual aspect on, a, on follow-up. The predominant the two-thirds, they actually were cared for and managed under hospital settings, in OP settings and IP settings. And they improved because of that. So I think this was actually a catchment program where you find people with mental health disorders and allow them to experience what is the right to healthcare for them, which is actually modern medical management, evidence-based management, I might say. And uh, this is very important because such programs improve patient outcomes, not because they're integrated, because we are able to identify people who require real help and guide them in the right way. Based on this uh, particular uh, program, if you look at, there are a lot of studies done on intercessory prayers and uh, spiritual, you know, uh, application of spirituality in uh, medical management in psychiatric diseases and non psychiatric diseases. We can actually see that initially in the last, I mean, if you look at from 1990s to 2000s, you can see that a lot of the uh, studies showed positive benefits of prayers and spirituality, religiosity, and all those things. And that is because they were not well designed, and a lot of confounding and bias factors, especially drug treatments, were not looked into in those studies. So when you look at the newer studies on prayers and spirituality in management of, from you say, heart diseases to psychiatric illnesses to uh, to even musculoskeletal diseases, chronic musculoskeletal diseases, uh, I mean, a lot of studies have been done, and they actually show one thing is that uh, intercessory prayers actually have no additional benefit than improving optimism. So the clinical outcomes remain the same, but patient-related subjective outcomes, for example, improvement in optimism, improvement in well-being, these don't clinically translate, but those things actually improve with uh, intercessory prayers and all these spirituality. And a recent properly conducted randomized controlled trials in patients with heart disease undergoing bypass surgeries and intercessory prayers actually showed that praying worsened their outcomes because people thought they were going to die with all the intercessory prayers in between and so it it, it it's it's very heterogeneous you cannot actually say that you know from a spirituality point of view also if you uh, integrate actual healthcare with spirituality and traditional practices related to such things it does not necessarily mean that the clinically patients are benefiting they might be benefiting personally or anecdotally but Ultimately, the benefit clinically does not translate. So, I think uh, programs like the Dawa-Dua programs, uh, I mean the protocol, it, it's important to identify patients so that we can lead them to the right direction, to the right treatment and it does not actually translate to an improved outcome because of integration.
1: Uh, that, this is what I feel. Dr. ESK? So, I think even the WHO has talked about health as being of body, mind and spirit. And I think one should not in, you know, ignore the spirit in the healing of a human being. Depending on one's exposure, religion and spirituality become a big part of many people's mind frame. And I think leveraging on that to help somebody get better is not necessarily in any way bad. And here I think the importance of something like Dawa dua is also that it improved access to care. It took people who, were, who might have been accessing only spiritual health, uh, it took them to mental health treatment. And perhaps it helped them stay in mental health treatment as well. And I think that's, that's very important, that we need to try and find different ways of making people seek appropriate health. Once again, modern medicine has a very important role to play in, in uh, human health. Uh, But I believe that one cannot discount the role of complementary and alternative medicine. I believe that one cannot discount the role of spirituality. And you know, as Paramahamsa Yogananda said, we are all victims of our own experience. I guess unless we practice something, we don't really understand it. And I I think I should probably leave that there.
0: (laughs) Thank you so much for your time, doctors.